In the Thick of It, a Profit and Loss podcast with Colin Lambert and Galen Stobbs. Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Loss's weekly podcast with myself, Colin Lambert, and as always, Galen Stobbs, editor of P&L in New York. This week, I was considering starting off with a couple of stories on our website, Galen, that um, CTAs and trend followers uh, didn't have a great May. And obviously, that means that you know, one of your predictions is slightly in uh, in a grey area now. While at the same time, my knocky Mexican yeah, stuff for the year, yeah. But my knocky Mexican traders come roaring back to life. We're back, back, back. <laughs> but rather than gloat over that, I thought we could we could probably go on to more um, pressing matters. Uh, I was intrigued by something you published this week. You did an interview um, on an, another peer to peer. Imagine, yeah. I think it was FX Hedgepoint, was it? Hedgepool. Yeah. So run me through, run me through, because obviously I'm a, I'm a well-known skeptic on peer-to-peer matching, but it did seem to be a few different areas these guys are looking at. So run me through what their key points well, are, if you if you would. Well, firstly, while we're talking about predictions, for listeners who haven't read uh, Colin's opinion pieces, he decried those who believe that peer-to-peer matching can work and, and be a thing in FX. So basically, the, the reason why peer-to-peer matching, you can see the advantages of it, right? It, you know, if, if one person is selling, one person is buying, you know, why do they have to pay, a, you know, a bank or an intermediary to sit in the middle of that? You know, why can't they just match off with no, no market impact and it's cheaper? I get that. The right, problem sorry, is, sorry, I've got to stop you there. Um, who's going to decide what rate they're going to match off at? Because I, I, I totally get your point. The argument they make is, yeah, well, we can <clears throat> match off our pay spreads, but actually, who's going to decide what price they're going to trade at? Well, why can't why can't they can negotiate with each other as easy as a bank? So one of them will be looking to have the advantage. Could be. So therefore, one of them will still be paying away a spread. It will just be to another. It will just be to a competitor organisation rather than a service organisation. Well, there is that. Yeah. Anyway, carry on. So I'd. I'd, I'd <laughs> What interrupted, um, you know, Fitzwilliam Comprehensive School? But obviously, there's, there's systems around that. I mean, you could, you could. There's a number of ways you could decide the part. You could have a platform, right, that uses the mid rate from, you know, X Y Z, or creates an index. Yeah. From yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, so there are ways around that um, in terms of agreeing the price. Which will probably be banks providing those prices. Banks providing the prices, but banks, you know, you wouldn't necessarily be. They wouldn't get a fee no. from that. Fair enough, yep. Therefore, the price would be reduced. But anyway, mm-hmm. so there's been a number of attempts to do that in the past, right? And the, the general problem has always been that, that too many of the flows in spot effects are correlated and that you only get, you know, a very small rate of trades matching off. And then what do you do yep. with the leftover? Um, yeah. <laughs> normally, normally the, the firms or the, or the banks that have tried to do this, that leftover gets funneled into a venue of their choice and gets kind of executed there, which isn't always ideal. Anyway, hmm. um, what, so so the big issue that FX uh, Hedgepool is banking on is that people have been focused on spot FX for peer-to-peer matching because um, you know it's easier to deal with. You don't have to deal with tenor alignment. Um, you don't have to deal with credit issues to the same extent as you do in other products. But they decided to tackle these issues, and they are going specifically for the swaps market. And specifically, right. they're targeting very specific. They're targeting firms that are executing passive FX hedging programs. So they yep. are looking for you know you're a you're a one billion dollar fund and you have to you know sell euros every month. 
guess what? Next month, you're still going to be a one billion dollar fund, and you're still going to have to sell euros. So it becomes this predictable, uh, repeatable pattern of hedging, which then makes it able to kind of net off the different um, the different exposures that people want to, to have or get rid of. That's the kind. Do they of think this is going to be? Yeah, so they think it's going to be mainly so that sort of firm. Is that going to be a corporate, mainly corporate firm? Because obviously, yeah. like the investment managers, you know, they don't know what their portfolio is going to be to a degree, do they? I mean, yeah, they, I know they might, they have bias within their investment portfolios. But if I hear the words like you know programs, you know passive hedging, I'm thinking corporate. Is that fair, or are they actually thinking beyond that? Uh, so the, the first the first segment they're targeting is actually asset managers. Now, right. when, okay. when you when you talk to them, it, it's very much oh, this is for anyone. This can be a hedge fund. This could be a corporate. Anyone who has passive hedging requirements yeah. can do this. Yeah. But the reality is, right? It's 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 started by um, three three guys from the market. Um, now, on the technology side, you have um, Richard Leader. And Emin Tatozian, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. That um, they're very much on on the technology side, and then Jay Moore um, is very much kind of the he kind of started the the whole kind of process behind the platform, but they kind mm-hmm. of launched it together. Now his background, right? He's spent his entire career doing that kind of uh, a passive FX hedging for firms yeah. okay. on the buy side, right? So so his yeah. his contact, his experience is much more, I think, on the asset management side. And so that's why he's going. I mean, he's saying, "No, I've been doing this for 20 years. I know this, how much I've sat there and seen it. This firm is hedging, you know, that much. There's a firm over here hedging that much. There's enough to to get it matching up." And one of the interesting things, even though um, in, in the article, uh, Jay Moore makes the argument that that given what he's seen, he doesn't think that you know, like an 80% matching rate is is realist is is unrealistic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we talked to um, uh, Andy Mack from Vanguard, um, who is kind of he seems to be quite a big advocate of this new platform. Um, and he was making yep. the point that, that the just the figures in this market are, are so significant. The amount of the the numbers required to hedge portfolios are growing so big that even if even if he only gets kind of a 40, 50% match off rate, that can be hundreds of billions of dollars in the hedge market. And that can actually yeah. make a, a big difference. So actually, you don't need to have a huge, very high matching rate to make this worthwhile for a lot of firms in the market. Okay. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> and actually, I, I, I do kind of get that. I mean, that, that's the bit that kind of intrigued me, the fact they are looking away from spot to a, a time where you know, people have more um, more leeway over how they hedge. The interesting thing for me, and, and I think it's probably better to go to asset managers, because my point on corporates was going to be, well, that's all very well, but most corporates have to deal with the banks that are on their revolving line of credit facility. And yeah. that kind of limits how they, you know, their access to other markets. Um, I guess my question is still going to be um, 80% matching rate. Are we talking a netting facility rather than just a trading platform? Um, so this is the thing. I mean, the, we got the exclusive on this. But this far away from from launch, still the the co-founders still being a little bit uh, reluctant to kind of you know give up all yeah. the details. But I mean, that's I fine, think yeah. very much, very much, and that's fair enough, of course. But very much the the secret sauce on this 
is in kind of the the technology used to to match off and, and net off um yeah the, the different things is it is it a a netting platform versus a trading venue um i don't think it's it's a, i don't I honestly don't know, but I also don't know at what point no. you're getting into semantics between the two. So for me, the- oh no, it's just the fact that I'm sitting there thinking, well, no one's is, is you know, no one's going to be making a rate. It strikes me because otherwise they'll become market makers, which becomes difficult for a lot of these, a lot of these funds. You know, you've got to make a, a market. So you place an interest in the market. I, I, I think you're right. It is it is semantics, um, but. No one's making a rate. They're looking, they're dealing with passive flows that pretty much people know in advance what they're going to be doing. And they're looking and saying, well, this guy's a seller every month, this guy's a buyer. There's no real sort of negotiation. There's, there's no need for a negotiation or trading practice. They need a mid rate to trade that, don't they? Um, yeah. Two other questions on it then. Uh, you briefly touched on it in your comment just a minute ago there. Um, credit. So you, if you're is, if you're in an exposure for one month to a, to an, you know another asset manager, you're surely going to have to have some sort of credit and set of a mechanism to sort of yeah give you. Are they, are they all going to go on to CLS and use CLS to settle? So so this is this is my biggest question around the platform, right? It is on this credit side, um, yeah. Which is you know in and again, but this is one of the things that that um, they kind of they. They're willing to talk about it a bit in the article, but again, they didn't want to go into details about in, no, in no. the actual mechanism until closer to launch, which is that they've partnered with Standard Chartered um, to develop this, uh, you know, a multilateral credit model, um, yeah. which again, and, and this is another part of the secret source, I think, which is why they're a bit reluctant to talk about it right now. Um, but supposedly, whatever they've kind of engineered with Standard Chartered. They seem confident that that will solve the credit issues. The reason why I question that is because it's the only piece that I re- really don't know about. I don't know much more. Um, yeah. As that, apart from the fact that they've developed um, a model with Stan Charter that they're that they're personally very confident. Yeah. So, yeah. So for, me, so for me, that's one of the big that's one of the big kind of wait and see thing, which is I want to know you know what that is ultimately going to look like because that's an important part of this. Yeah, I think it's. Um, I mean, I'm quite fascinated by the concept. I mean, let's say I'm a skeptic on peer-to-peer matching generally, but there are a lot of flows, and, and Andy Mac's point is a good one. There, there's huge amount of roles in the market, and I guess if they can sort of net those off, to me it just you know it sounds like a pre-trade hedging, a pre-trade netting mechanism, and and that's fine, and I think it's a good idea for the market. Um, the only thing I would say is that, you know, if you look at the very short dates, you know, up to one week, a lot of the time, particularly, you know, around certain award schedules, a lot of the time they're dealing at mid-rate anyway. If they've got three banks on, they're probably, they're probably getting choice pricing and they're dealing at mid-rate anyway. You know, most banks deal at mid-rate. It's, it's the credit issue that causes someone to trade away from mid. Um, so I, I wonder how, how much of an improvement they'll be getting. Um, all I'm saying is, if the FX hedge pool takes off, I'm going to start every single article I write about them with a reference to your Narnia comment. Yeah. <laughs> um, the only thing I would say, of course, is that I, I was talking about, at the time, I was talking about a spot peer-to-peer oh, platform. Here it comes. And I, here it comes. And I maintain, 
<laughs> and I maintain the fact that a spot peer-to-peer matching problem, a matching platform will not work because they don't want to hold the risk on it. Um, if you're netting, and that's my point, if this becomes a netting mechanism, then I think that's somewhat different. Um, and, and I kind of get it. I guess the other things that I would worry about, actually, is that um, yeah, we're talking to people out there that are also looking at peer-to-peer matching. Now, yes, to your original point, a lot of people are looking at it in the spot market. This is a little bit different, but it's not that much of a leap of faith to go from spot to forwards. If you're already running, if you're already looking at a spot platform, let's make it swaps as well. Um, the last thing you need if you're trying to get into the thing that's about netting is fragmentation. So competing entities here would probably undermine the concept fatally. If you're if you're trying to build a big netting pool of, of passive hedging flows that trade, you know, that naturally trade against each other, the last thing you want is that flow being broken down across three or four platforms, and that could easily happen if people, you know, this is a good idea. Um, so people will undoubtedly look at it, and we know there's other people out there looking at peer-to-peer stuff. So the fragmentation yeah. piece of it worries me long term. The fragmentation piece of challenge also, and we do talk about this um, a fair bit in the article which is they're going to face the challenge that, that pretty much every startup who would like to work with um, with large asset managers faces, which is it's a long yeah. sell cycle, right? It's a long sell yeah. cycle. And, you know, and, and this isn't unique to them. This is any startup. And I've seen this happen before where people have had, you know, a good idea, good equipment. It's that they're, they're sticky in the way they do things already. It's a long sell cycle. And can you kind of stay solvent as long as the sell cycle takes Plus, you know, they're, it, they make commit very long-term commitments, so they've got to be very, very confident that that firm is going to be around in 5, 10, 15 yeah. years' time before they'll commit to, to working with that. And if, if people go and listeners go and read the article, they are obviously aware of that, and we kind of discuss it in, in detail in the article. Um, but that's, that's a concern that's not unique to this firm or idea. It's just the, the nature of the beast for, for startups, and particularly when you're targeting yeah, um, and I think the fact is, as long as people are aware of the threat of fragmentation in this particular area, then probably that means that you know this will there will be a first mover advantage. Um, the only other thing I would actually just question on this, if I'm just going to be a little bit mischievous, is um, so if we've got a peer-to-peer matching coming into markets like this, um, Effectively, they're going to become someone's going to become a market maker or liquidity provider. You would you would you would assume they're all technically liquidity providers now. Um, does that mean they need to reassess their lack of commitment to the FX Global Code? Because they're insisting on the other LPs doing it. Um, we've spoken before about the buy side being a little slow in taking up the Global Code. If we go more peer to peer matching, then they're becoming LPs and you know, proper market participants. Um, I would say, well, there you go. This is these are the behaviour standards we expect. So that could be another. I mean, it's an interesting concept. Yeah, you know, I'm raising these points for conversation purposes rather than actual genuine scepticism over its likely success. Because I think yeah. the numbers are big enough to make it to make it a success if they get it right. But you know, it, it's going to be an interesting um, evolution on that one. So we'll see. Yeah, and I think I think it's something um, that we're going to be talking about. You know for a while now um and obviously yeah. you know, we'll be we'll be kind of tracking progress on this and, and reporting more as they get closer to launch because as you as you say i think it's a very um intriguing prospect 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, something else you published this week actually also got my attention was, and it was the report from, you wrote about the report from Greenwich on FX options going towards the exchanges. Um, every time I sort of see these things, you kind of think, okay, is this just another sort of advertorial for the exchange mechanism in the US? Um, what was your take on the report? Uh, so my take on the report was, um, and I should stress, it, I, I don't, it wasn't, paid for by CME or anything. It's a very independent report. But CME will be delighted with this report um, yes. because it basically argues that uh, that a lot more FX options, well, not a lot more, but a significant amount more FX options activity is likely to head onto listed exchanges with CME obviously being kind of the, the, the major game in town on that front. Yeah. Um, well, they are. Now, <laughs> yeah. I mean, the only really. Um, but, but, so, I mean, so the, the, the fundamental thesis is the uncleared margin rules that are coming in are going to change the economics of, of trading OTC uh, FX options, right? And they're going to make it more expensive. Uh, meanwhile, and, and that's kind of the push factor. So that will kind of push people to consider exchange-traded options because that's going to be um, economically cheaper in some cases under the U UMR kind of regime. And the pull factor mm -hmm. is, Changes CME obviously um, have obviously seen this, and they're making uh, a number of changes. Uh, you know, whether it's you know adding, um, they're changing the, the products themselves, right, to make them more kind of OTC like. They're trying to give it yeah. as much flexibility as they can within within the structure to try and and, and make the transition for those who who choose to make it easier. Um, that's the, the fundamental thesis. One thing that they did do, one of the stats that I uh, enjoyed, and I always enjoy in every report, whenever they say, <laughs> they have something like, uh, did you know that X percent of firms are considering this, right? Yeah. <laughs> always makes me laugh, right? I think we talked about this once before when it was like, uh, there was like a breathless report, like, oh my God, did you know that 95% of firms are considering uh, changing their operations because of Brexit? It's just like, well, yeah, if, if you're not considering changing your 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 operations because of Brexit, you're an idiot, right? Like, of course yeah. you're considering it. it mean, like, I consider lots of things in my average day, right? It doesn't actually mean anything. So they have um, <laughs> so they have one stat, which is, you know, um, considering listed FX options when firm becomes subject to exchange margin, and, you know, 38% of firms say that they are. Well, okay. Mm. Like, you know, Almost forty percent saying that they're considering it. I, I don't know how much something that, that actually means. You know, again, if if my job is to run the options business and there's new rules coming that's going to make my OTC business more expensive, I feel like it would be my I'd be you know doing my job poorly if I didn't look at other options and consider other options. Um, yeah, absolutely. So so yeah, I'm a little bit skeptical of that, but I mean, to be honest, most of it seems. Fairly common sense. Um, you know, I had a chat with the author of the report, and you know, obviously, we, you know, I spoke to him, and, and he kind of very much agreed that there's an obvious limit to how far this trend can go, just because. Mm -hmm. But for all the changes that the CME can make to their contracts, I mean, they can't ever really replicate the the, the bespoke nature, the flexibility of an OTC um, options contract. And, and therefore, no. and you know, these firms, you know, they need uh, a lot of them need to trade at a specific size in a specific currency on a specific time and date, 
and and they just need that, and that's the most important thing for them. So there's, I, I don't, I don't the the underlying thesis, which is we will see some migration towards exchange, yep. just because of the economics. But I think that there is a, a very definite and firm limit. On the options thing, to me, I think the flexibility piece is quite important because it's only going to take one client to have a problem with basis risk where, you know, okay, well, we've, we've, we've and, and I, you know, I know the report notice, you know, notes this around the, 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 the ability to, you know, they're looking at do we give up um, flexibility for to save on transaction costs. But, um, you know, if you're suddenly, if you've got five-day gap risk and something happens in that five days, and the law of sod states that it will at one stage, then all of a sudden your transaction fees are wiped out anyway for a start. Um, so I think that's a problem there. Also, generally speaking, it's the same in it's the same in all products. The valuable business, you know, the business that offers the most return, um, you know, to loop back to our first thing, is the passive hedging. The guys are actually naturally hedging because they're not they're not looking to trade this for profit. They're hedging their flows, and that generally they're generally the the business that leaves more dollars on the table. So that's the business you want. Um, but they are the ones, as you point out quite rightly, that needs that flexibility. They need the bespoke dates. They need the right size. Um, are they going to move on? Are they going to give up that flexibility to save a couple of basis points? Um, I'm not convinced. I've got to be honest. Um, I wonder. There's a, something that the report doesn't consider. Um, but as these you know, rules come into you know, encompass more and more market players. I wonder whether the other, the other option is, all puns intended, that people just stop trading FX options. If, you're, if, you, if you've got to give up flexibility just to save a couple of basis points, um, is actually, you know, you're suddenly raising your risk levels. Maybe you'll turn around and say, well, it's too, it's too expensive now to trade FX options. You know, I'll do a strip of forwards um, or I'll find some other way to hedge my, my flows. It, it could be that one thing they do is actually give up trading options and volume of options falls. Yeah. Um, I mean, the problem with that is, um, you know, you do a, a strip of forwards, but aren't they going to be subject to UMR as well? Um, well, not at the moment, as I understand it. No. Is it just options? I would get confused. Is it just options? Yeah, it's options and NDS is subject to the rules. Because the Treasury exempted FX swaps a few years ago, didn't they? Tim Geithner did it. Yeah, sorry, that's I was getting um, yeah. and forwards confused. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah. you look at that and think, well, maybe, you know, it's uh, you know, that, that's another outcome of it. Because, you know, FX option volumes um, haven't really done that much over the last few years. In, I haven't got the exact data, but when has ever stopped me having an opinion on something? Um, but I think they've probably, you know, they're flatlined while other products have gone up, certainly FX swaps. Um, so maybe we're already seeing it. People saying, well, actually, you know what? Um, I don't want the cost involved. Um, and I get there's, you know, the, the uncleared margin rules will create some cost. But there's also the cost of actually, you know, trading on an exchange. As opposed yeah. to a, an OTC market, I mean, these things, you know, the the cost advantages are eroded to a degree, not totally. I totally, I, yeah, I, I accept that. But yeah, I, I just look at it sometimes and think, yeah, I wonder if they look at it. If I'm a corporate treasurer and I'm looking to, you know, hedge myself, I want to hedge myself properly. 
I don't want to leave myself nasty little five-day you know, risks here, there, and everywhere. Um, and you know, don't get me wrong, you know, the exchange groups can, <clears throat> can um, evolve their product set further to maybe come up with bespoke um, dates, bespoke sizes, and, and, and an OTC-type platform. Personally, I don't see why we don't just have OTC platforms that are connected that can give up to, an, to a clearinghouse. It just strikes me as being the sensible way of doing this. It gives clients the flexibility. It allows the major traders to hedge in buckets, and they are used to managing gap and basis risk. Um, yeah, then, you know, do it that way. So I think, again, there could be some changes on the margin there. But I think, again, there's going to be a limit to how many people who are used yeah. to just using FX options who suddenly going to be like, oh, I'll, grow to, I'll, I'll switch and stop doing a strip of forwards now. Yeah. Um, I think there's going to be a limit to how many people want to do that and how many people would be like, yeah. I'll, you know, I'll either just keep what I'm doing, what I'm doing, and pay a little bit more, or yeah, I'll reach for the, the next nearest thing and pay a tiny bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think there's also a size element there as well. You know, at the moment, there's, you know, if you want to execute a large hedge, um, you don't want to be doing it publicly. Um, you really want to go OTC on that, and that's and that's another issue I think for them as well. You know, trying to get you know, CME does a, CME is the biggest FX options exchange in most markets, um, and it does probably you know ten yards a day of FX options on futures. Yeah. Um, if you're looking to do two and a half yard hedge, twenty five delta hedge, twenty five delta, you know, even in euro dollar. Um, you're going to you're certainly going to be a quarter of the market, and you're going to be posting interest up there that will be seen by everybody. That's going to have market impact. So I think there's there's a few issues they've got to they've got to um, overcome there. So anyway, again, something we can keep an eye on. That one won't go away for a little while yet. Um, talking talking about size there. Um, I actually yeah. wanted well I had I wanted to bring this up, um, which was and and this is something that we we've. We've talked about this podcast before, but I read a really interesting um, blog this week, which was from um, RCM Alternatives, um, and it was about the uh, the woes of, of AQR, which hasn't had um, a vintage couple of years. Um, yeah. In terms of in terms of AUM, um, they've had something like nine billion of redemptions in the last years. Um, so they they basically you know, lost more assets than most shops will ever own. Mm. Um, and it was kind of looking at, at, at why this has happened and and kind of what's going wrong. Um, and it was interesting because one of the things that they, they seem to point the finger at is actually the size of the fund itself, right? Which was um, that the, because AQR is so big now compared to a lot of its peers, um, but for starters, it was unable to participate in a meaningful way in a lot of the markets that have actually moved this year, which were kind of, a lot of them were kind of you know yep. smaller, more esoteric kind of ag products, right? And, and their yep. footprint's just too big that they can't they can't really get in there, right? Um, as it talks about, kind of you know their footprint makes market impact an issue, you know, bring like the the need kind of for for better or different execution um, tools. Um, and the other issue is just simply that, uh, you know, it can't be easy to unwind 9 billion of positions without actually negatively impacting the ones that you still hold. So then you get into kind of this this vicious circle as you kind of try and unwind yeah. these positions. 
Yeah, totally agree. I, I mean, I wrote about this a, a couple of months ago in the column. Um, there is a real, I do believe there's a real problem. I think we've even mentioned it, as you said on the podcast before. I think there's a real problem in the size of some of these funds because, you know, you've mentioned it several times about investors um, not going for smaller funds because they don't want to be a big part of the fund. They, they can't be a big percentage yeah. of the fund. Um, they want the good track record. They want this this comfort of, of size and scale. The problem is the minute you go to market, all of a sudden it's like turning Titanic to get out of a position. And it's not just yeah. a question of those positions that are left behind. You know, if you're trying to get out of a multi-billion dollar position, you're going to create some serious slippage. I don't think, you know, the execution tools can be there. That's absolutely fine. The problem is if market liquidity is not there, then what the hell are you going to do? Yeah. You can have the best execution tools in the world. But if you don't have enough liquidity in that market, um, then I think you're just going to struggle. And I, I kind of think this could happen more and more going forward. Some of the bigger funds... You know, the headlines will look oh, dramatic. You know, they're losing X billion dollars. What it could be doing, and I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not sort of massively up on AQR, but again, yeah. why would that sort me having an opinion? Um, <laughs> but I don't, I don't think, you know, this could actually make it AQR, easier for AQR to perform better for their investors. Actually coming down to a reason, this could be them actually trimming to a reasonable size. It looks dramatic. Oh, they're losing, they're losing confidence. Well, is it confidence or is it just the fact that people are starting to recognize that um, these people can handle my investments and they've got some good investment ideas, but the sheer physical trading is starting to kill them? I mean, it's, I mean yeah. it's, it's under my performance. They're still at just over five and a half billion, so they're not. They're not yeah. kind of teeny tiny and trim by any stretch of the imagination. No, but yeah, maybe it's a question. They're actually um, in a better place now to actually succeed. You know, one of yeah. my favourite things: position for su- position for success. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with the report. I mean, I think it is. It does. Or, and your your summary there. It, it does come down to the fact that. Um, Getting in and out of markets is just too difficult for some of these funds. And AQR are by no means the biggest. I think this will become an issue for you know the big big funds as well at some stage. Um, they they either have to have a shed load more strategies so they can actually break down the AUM um, yeah. into you know, meaningful meaningful amounts um, and different strategies. But if you have a successful strategy, everybody wants a piece of you, don't they? And that's the problem. Yeah. Um, I I do remember a hedge fund friend of mine years ago saying, you know, they went through a period like they made nine months successive gains, and everything was going great. And the tenth, <coughs> excuse me, the tenth month had their highest redemption rate in in their thirty year history. And sort of going, well, hang on, how does that work? And they said, well, there's a lot of investors out there believe if you've had nine months in a row up, then you're due a down month, and they'll take their money out anyway. So, you know, the, the whims of investors and, and some is always a very difficult one for me, I've got to be honest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're going to close out um, in just a second here, actually. I, I suppose while we're on the question of size, we should just briefly mention that um, the Euro Money survey, I think it was their 41st survey, was out uh, this week. JP Morgan's the number one trader. I don't think anyone's surprised by that, are they? Um, Deutsche Bank comes to number two in this survey, which I thought was fairly interesting. I mean, 
I, 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 I don't get the concept of the of the survey still to a degree. Um, you know, volume is is one way of gauging it. But we we did kind of note in our awards in um, April, and yes, this is me trying to steal everyone's glory. Um, that Deutsche Bank has definitely made a comeback in FX because the bank's committed to it. So that didn't surprise me. Um, what what did you make of it? So, so okay. My my whole issue with the, the Euro Money Survey is, um, yes, okay, great. It, it's kind of interesting to see who's doing volume. Although, like everyone complains to me about people gaming it and this and that. I would, I think it would be far personally. I think it would be far more interesting um, and, and valuable if there was something that looked at the profitability of these firms rather than the volume. Because I mean, they even even note uh, note in the report that. Um, you know, in, in terms of profit, this is actually a direct quote from the article they did. Um, in terms of profit maximization, whether a provider finishes second or fifth, say, in euro money is not hugely important. Um, mm. I, I would, I would be far more interested in knowing, particularly, you know, given what we've seen in of the kind of the rationalizing of, of various business segments, but also I thought kind of of effects of recent years where people. Whether they were just making noises about it or not, but people were talking about, you know, it's about, you know, quality, not volume of client and this and that. Um, therefore, I'd, I'd be interested, um, as I say, just to, to see kind of who's actually making money. Because, again, they know this yeah. in the report, right? Anybody can get up the rankings because you just cut your prices, you stop making money and you shoot up the report. Right? Which, is what, which is what used to happen. Yeah, and I think Euro Money themselves actually acknowledge it. I mean, I do think they've sorted out the gaming issues. They're a lot stricter around the voting process, and I think they're a lot quicker to take people out, which is which is good. Um, I, I think, as always, you've got to take these things as a group. I mean, we did used to actually rank banks by P and L in FX. Um, P and L, you know, every, every year we used to do it every June. Um, the problem became that with the advent of FIC. Yeah, uh, most banks stop breaking out their FX numbers. I mean, but in, I, I totally agree with you. Um, you know, I can't remember. I think City were third or fourth. HSBC were, you know, nowhere that close. Um, but I do remember many years ago, Deutsche Bank saying, "Oh yeah, one of our targets is to be a, you know, is to um, two billion dollars in revenue in FX." At that time, City was already making six, and so was HSBC making six billion. So, in terms of revenue, it's yeah, you know, it's a diff, it's a diff. I mean, why do yeah, why do these banks make money? Because they're on the ground in local markets where they make good margins. So, I think you just need a blend of everything, don't you? But I definitely think you, yeah, one of the things to go back to your AKR thing is there's you know, bigger is not necessarily better. Who do you think is the most profitable bank in FX right now? HSBC. That's who I followed by City, yeah, followed by City, and I think it, and I think it's because of the local markets business. I, local don't market get me wrong. In terms of market, in terms of the market presence, J.P. Morgan is number one. I've stated that for a few years now. Um, yeah, they they really ramped up their electronic FX efforts. They improved their technology, you know, both pricing and then the platform beyond all recognition. Um, to me, J.P. Morgan is the undoubted number one player out there. It's interesting, though, because the, 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 at a guesstimate, the bank that we both picked as, as perhaps the most profitable in FX, how many of our uh, EFX awards did they win this year? One. Oh, did they win one? 
Yeah, they won the innovation for the blockchain. Oh, okay, they did. Well, that that kind of yeah. ruined my point. But my point was, they don't tend to win. <laughs> my point was, no, you're they, right. I mean, to be not, fair, they're not famed for yeah. their ESX prowess. Exactly, and that is that is and that is a very good point. And I think that kind of links in with the fact that on there are a lot of local markets because you know um, trying to trying to um, standardise you know, probably forty different trading platforms is, is is a hell of a job for anyone. They are working on it, but no, you're right. I mean, I think that's a, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a, a very valid point. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's it's interesting. I mean, you know, these surveys. There's a lot of attention on this. It's fine. It's been going 41 years. They've changed the mechanism. It, it is of interest, but ultimately, I think you know, does it, it used to be a marketing tool? Does it? Is it really now? Um, it could be. It's a purer survey. You get more solid results from it, which is fine. Um, I think yeah. One thing we've noticed with our awards over the years is that they've kind of they've generally been very steady in terms of the winners because. If someone establishes a leadership position, they're very good at defending it. Um, you don't often see people decline. You did in the mid-2000s, um, but you haven't in the 2010s. So, yeah, we'll see. Um, on that note, we will leave it there. I'm leaving you with this bumper issue of In the Thick of It. Um, remember, you can download us from the um, iTunes store. I believe there's actually a few other podcast stores you can get us from. Being a bit of a technical... Uh, Neanderthal, I have no idea what they're called. <laughs> Do you? Well, I, I, I don't know which what you're referring to. I don't know if we're on Spotify or anything. As you can tell, I, I haven't been leading that charge. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. I don't, you can get it somewhere else anyway. You can download us. Thanks for listening. Um, well, we we'll will be back you next week. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah there's, there's a task for us. Yeah. So we'll speak to you next week. Thanks for listening. And um, yeah, have a great week.